Christ, instead of saying all to thee, I said all to Jesus. Twice. We now have our final message today by Curtis Whiteley, entitled God's Mighty Hand. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here on another somewhat rainy Sabbath day after, I hate to be too redundant, uh, but I'll have to probably echo a lot of the things that Sean said in the first message, and that is a pretty crazy week, an unprecedented week as far as uh, I can remember, and most people would probably agree, most of us would probably agree. Uh, with everything going on with the COVID-19 coronavirus state of emergency uh, and how quickly everything happened this week, right? You know, I mean, from Tuesday to Thursday was like, you know, you seemed like Tuesday was two weeks ago. You know, the small steps they were taking and by Thursday, uh, things had really ramped up and yesterday the president declaring a national emergency. And so... Churches all across the, the country are probably going to be preaching similar sermons this week uh, because this, this is something as, as church, I mean, you've got to address it, right? You've got to address what's going on in your culture and in your society. And I, I just was thinking, you know, I mean, things are being canceled, NCAA tournament being canceled, which was, I think the last time they canceled that was like during World War II. It's a, it's, it, and obviously, whether you like basketball or don't, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't oftentimes watch a lot of it. Uh, but a lot of people do, and it's a big part of our American culture. It's a, a lot of people that aren't even interested in basketball uh, might keep up with the NCAA tournament just because it's become such a big thing in our culture. Uh, but nevertheless, what's not to be canceled is worshiping God. Obviously, that doesn't mean that Things can't happen. You have to, I'm not saying that churches shouldn't close or anything like that. I mean, obviously, things will be warranted in certain ways. What I mean by that is, though, and maybe I should word it better, what's not canceled is our responsibility to be a light to the world. That our responsibility to provide hope to a broken world that's still broken until Jesus comes back, until this kingdom is established on this earth. And I was reading... First uh, Peter, the fifth chapter. We're going to start on First Peter five, but my main text is actually going to go all the way back to a story of, with Joshua. But I was reading First Peter, the fifth chapter this week, and I want to just kind of read this half this chapter because it inspired the title of my message. And I wrote down in the flesh. This isn't a passage. All things are uncertain, but because we have a mighty God, all things in the spirit are certain. And so if we read verse 1 of 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11, it reads this. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter was a partaker of that glory. Peter was a witness of both Jesus during his life. He was a witness of the transfiguration of Jesus. He was a witness of his crucifixion and to the risen Jesus after Jesus was rose from the dead. But he gives this excerpt, you know, exhortation to elders, but also the younger people in the church. And he writes, 
verse 2, shepherd the flock of, of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because you just have to, but because you want to, because you love the brethren. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Verse 5, likewise, you younger people. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the key verse that really struck me was in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all of your care upon him for he cares for you and he cares for us and he understands what we're going through and it didn't just start this week or last week he's been with us all along and he will continue to be with us all along and so as I was thinking about the mighty hand of God I want us to look at a story that I think both demonstrates the mighty hand of God as well as what it looks like to humble ourselves before that mighty hand of God. And we're going to pick up a quick story in the book of Joshua. So let's go to Joshua, the fifth chapter. We know a little bit about Joshua, Joshua's story. Joshua is one of Moses' young, faithful assistants. He was a mentoree, so to speak, along with Caleb in the wilderness with the Israelites. And he would become the successor of Moses and be chosen to be the one to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the promised land. Now we're not going to read this, but if you were to read the first part of chapter 1, it's almost like a letter from God to Joshua. We read what God tells Joshua. And one of the things that he tells him to do was to keep the scriptures, keep the covenant, to lead the people into the, the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And in verse 9, I'll just read this. He says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we just think about Joshua. He's this young man that's seen and been Moses' assistant, of course. He's seen the miracles. But that must have been a tall order for Joshua. It must have been somewhat daunting to be taking over for this Moses that had led the children of Israel for so many years and now he's in charge and God is trying to assure him trying to assure him that he would be with him. And so we pick it up here in verse five, or chapter 5 and there's this event that happens but from verse 1 to chapter 5, many things have taken place. The children of Israel, they sent spies, jo jo Joshua that is, sent spies to Jericho to scope out the city. We know the story of Rahab the harlot. Joshua and Israel miraculously cross over the Jordan River. Priests, they take the Ark of the Covenant. They, as soon as they dip their, or as soon as their feet touches the water, the water stops. And we see that the Israelites go over the Jordan River on dry land, a miracle. Joshua and the Israelites also, they come over to Gilgal and they keep the Passover. They're circumcised and they keep the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. And this is the city that's just a little north 
of Jericho. And we know that this city is actually named after what God says in the text because God tells them at Gilgal that the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away from Israel there at Gilgal. And that word Gilgal is, is derived from the Hebrew word rolled away. And so in chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, you've probably heard of this story before, the commander of the Lord's army. We pick it up. In verse 13, and we read, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him, with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Verse 15. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And so some basic facts of this. We know that they're camping at Gilgal, as already mentioned, which is just about two miles north of Jericho, where the Israelites are getting ready to besiege and take over, as God had instructed them. But this particular occasion is kind of interesting because it might have been a situation where Joshua himself had maybe left the camp of Israel there in Gilgal and went down to scope out the city. And I say this because there's no mention of armies being around him or anyone else. It seemed that maybe this was just a pre-battle occasion where Joshua on his own was trying to reflect, maybe trying to get a glimpse of Jericho, see what the city looked like. Maybe he was possibly planning a strategy in his head, gathering information about the city, trying to look at maybe from afar off the different fortifications. That might have not happened, but it seems that Joshua was alone because it doesn't seem that anyone else witnessed this situation. And so here you have Joshua, no matter where he is, whether he's in Gilgal, whether he's scoping out Jericho, but let's just think about what must have been going through his head. Maybe the concern, concerns that he had. You know, despite the experiences that he had with the Israelites, you know, seeing those miracles. He was a human. And he's going to have those human thoughts sometimes. Those lapses in faith like we all do. Even when we're righteous and when we're following God, sometimes it's hard to not let the flesh get in and make us start thinking about fleshly things, human things. And, Start thinking about, well, is God really going to be here? Because if you think about it, they had never taken a city over before. They had fought other people, but they had never taken over a city, and especially a city like Jericho, which would may have been one of the most fortified city in Canaan during this time. They also lacked of equipment. They had no battering rams, catapults. Scaling ladders or moving towers, all those things which most legitimate armies of the day during this period in this area of the world probably would have had. All they most likely had was their, at their disposal was swords, arrows, slings, and spears. Then he has this encounter with this man that stands afar or stands opposite of him, that's facing him. And this man has his sword drawn, which is an offensive position. And Joshua naturally asks him the question, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? 
Are you for Jericho, the ones in whom we're getting ready to go in and besiege and take over and invade? The response to Joshua's question is, Commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. That must have been a powerful experience. Can you imagine that? This random individual with the sword drawn, and you look at him and you say, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the Lord's army and I have now come. Joshua's response back reveals the individual's identity. At this response of what was told him, Joshua falls down and bows, and he was even told to remove the sandals from his feet as the presence of of this made the ground uh, as the ground in which he was standing on was holy. Now we know if we read the scriptures that there are instances where angels are with humans like for example Revelation the 19th chapter verse 10 we see John try to fall down before an angel and the angel tells him not to do that that he's an angel that he's not to be worshipped that he's not to be venerated in the way John seems to be in Revelation the 20th or 19th chapter was doing. And this encounter is interesting because it has a striking similarity to another story in the Bible, and that is the famous story of the burning bush in Exodus, the third chapter. Let's go there real quick, Exodus, the third chapter. The text identifies this personage as the angel of the Lord in this chapter. Now, we never really think about that. Because we always think of the burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. We don't think of the angel of the Lord, as we're getting ready to see. But it says in verse 1 of Exodus 3, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And we know if we continue on the story, we have the same thing that happens. Moses is instructed to take the sandals off his feet because the ground in which he stood was holy. Now, in theological circles, maybe you've heard of the term a theophany before. Many theologians, scholars of the Bible, talk about instances like this as what's called a theophany, where God appears in some sort of form to humans. The word theophany, of course, comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and the Greek word epiphaneia, which means appearance. And it's defined as a physical manifestation of God, often in human form, but could also be something like in the form of a dream, a vision, or in real times. Other examples in the Bible of the angel of the Lord can be found in Genesis, the 16th chapter, Genesis, the 22nd chapter, Numbers 22, and Judges, the second chapter, as well as others. But what we see happening here is that this commander of the Lord's army seems to be more than just an angel. But God manifested himself in the presence of Joshua. And this individual was coming to tell Joshua that he was here, or he was there, to fight the battles for Israel. 
So I have a few principles that we can get from this. And in light of what's going on in the world, the crux of my message today is to ensure us that we have a mighty God that's active, that cares for us, that provides provision for us. And the battles that we face are not our battles, but His. My first principle, we need to remember that God is our commander, not our soldier. He's our commander, not our soldier. Now you might think that Joshua himself was the commander of the Israelite army, but no, it was God who was the real commander. You know, it's interesting how the Hebrew text, if you read the King James, presents the answer to Joshua's first question. Are you with us or with our enemies? And the commander says, neither or no. But I am the commander of the Lord's army and now I have come. Now this might seem strange. This might seem like, you know, is this person, this person, this commander of the Lord's army, are they saying that they're neutral? Of course not not neutral. But it seems that the idea here was that the commander was not here just to follow along with them. Just another soldier. Wasn't just here to participate, but rather to take over. And what we see from this story is we see that this was never Israel's battle in the beginning. It was God's battle. Joshua was not to marshal the support of God in battle but that this battle all along was God's battle and it belonged to Him. And that's the same thing in our lives. Our battles belong to God. We are children of God. And at the response of this, at the response of Him telling Him that I'm the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come, He takes His sandals off His feet, He bows down, which could only mean that this was the God in a form manifested to Joshua. We see Joshua ask this question, What do you want me, your servant, to do? And hearkening back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the 5th chapter, verse 6, we obviously understand that Jesus is the greatest example of humility as submitting oneself to the mighty hand of God. But this right here is another great example. As 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares about you, for he cares for you. My second main point here is that God is personally present and has a powerful provision. In this case, Joshua's encounter seems to be one of encouragement, giving Joshua the assurance that the victory was God's and that this was God's battle and he would provide for the need of Israel. I can imagine what the Israelites were thinking. You're going up against a heavyweight of the land of Canaan. And it must have been something that a lot of them might have thought, well, here goes nothing. I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. And of course they did see the miracles, but we understand how things work. Think about Joshua's circumstance again. In Joshua, the sixth chapter, right after this, we're told, now Jericho was shut tightly. Jericho was shut tightly. Not only were they this pretty powerful city-state, wherever you'd call them, little nation, people group. They weren't an empire at this time, but they were definitely known in the land of Canaan. 
But they had a fortification around their city, hence we know the walls come falling down, right? That was tightly shut. That was almost, you know, unbreakable. And if you were probably to go to other nations or people groups in the land of Canaan and say, hey, let's go and surround the city and let's breach the doors or the walls of Canaan, people probably would have laughed at you and thought that's impossible. Especially a little old measly group that just came out of the wilderness that doesn't even have necessarily like a legitimate army according to the world standards at the time. But the question we have to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about the battles that we face? Do we not come up against odds that seem impossible? Well, we do, right? Odds or circumstances that seem completely uncertain. You know, and we as humans, we do the natural thing, right? We think about it. We worry about it, as Sean talked about. We, we have anxiety. We perform calculations of how we might be able to overcome the situation ourselves. We try to figure out how we're going to tackle some sort of desperate situation. You know, maybe it's a financial crisis, maybe it's a health crisis, maybe it's a how to deal with a pandemic crisis, as we're going through right now. And again, kind of reiterate what Sean said. I mean, I'm not here to put fear in this. I'm not here to say that what's going on is overblown or, or not. My focus here and our focus here should be on God and the provision that he gives us all week, before this and after this. This story here in Joshua tells us that we must remember that God is an act of God. That our battles are God's battles. And no matter how tall and secure the walls, no matter how the number of soldiers that we are up against, no matter how sophisticated their weaponry may be, God is our commander. And his provision is powerful. Now when we read the story of Jericho and Israel coming up against Jericho, we read about the ritual they do, they circle the city, they shout. But in reality, the shouts were not what toppled the walls of Jericho. They were the result of a people submitting to God and acknowledging God's supernatural intervention. Let's go to 2 Kings, pick it up in verse 6. Excuse me. There's another story. Maybe you remember the prophet Elijah. Elisha, I mean, not Elijah, but Elisha. And there was this time that there was a similar circumstance, a seeming impossible situation that the Israelites were in. And Elisha and his servant, they were in the city of Dotham, and the army of Ben-Hadad, the Syrian army, were up and surrounding the city. And this made his servant very, very nervous, very anxious. What's going to happen? We have nothing to be able to fight against them. And 2 Kings verse, chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I can imagine Elisha's servant saying, What are you talking can't do basic math? Look at these people over here. What do you mean there's more of us than them? Because we know that Elisha was talking about what Elisha was seeing. That he was able to see the angelic army that was before Elisha and the Israelites. And so verse 17, 
And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray you open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, that servant, and he saw. And behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a sight that must have been to see. Do we believe that we have the same thing in our lives? Do we believe that God doesn't have a powerful army backing us up? His powerful army in our life? Of course, we don't have necessarily, and sometimes we do, we don't have maybe physical adversaries all the time, but spiritual things that are going on. We can go back and read Daniel, and we can see there's this angelic world that's warring all the time. All the time. And we know that in that angelic world, that there's evil forces that want to get grips into our minds, to put fear in us, to make us be anxious, to get our focus off of God and on ourselves and how we're going to fix things, not rely on how God will fix things. Going back to Joshua's situation, an interesting thing that may have been in the back of Joshua's mind maybe in this instance, was the word of his predecessor, Moses, who was leading a people who saw Pharaoh's armies advancing back in Exodus, the 14th chapter. So you have the Israelites that come out of the, the Egypt, and eventually in Exodus, the 14th chapter, in that story, we see that the Israelites, they look back and they see Pharaoh's armies advancing, and they basically become very fearful, very scared. But in Exodus, the 14th chapter, verses 13 through 15, one of my most favorite passages in the Bible, it says in verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. But what's key is in verse 15. See, that's what Moses told the Israelites, which is, you know, stand still. Moses, this faith, he knew that God was going to intervene and stop the Egyptian advance. But God interjects in verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. What's interesting is, is because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a encouraging part of the Bible because it's, it's true, right? I mean, there's so many things that we can glean from that. We didn't live their experiences, but we live our own experiences. We have our own Egyptians that sometimes we're scared and we look back and we feel like they're chasing us. But in the midst of fear, in the midst of being anxious, one of the things that sometimes it does to us is it paralyzes us. It makes us stop. You see, God wants us to continue to go forward. He wants us to continue to proclaim the gospel, continue to be a light to the world. None of that's being canceled. But the temptation sometimes when anxiety grabs a hold of us is to make us paralyzed. And that's because we're stopping and we're thinking, oh, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to get through this? Instead of living in, a, in faith that it's already taken care of. Let's go to Matthew, the sixth chapter. And I won't hit this too much because Sean brought this out. But I think that maybe we could kind of read a little bit of it again. I'll talk a little bit about it. And of course, this is something that we can apply. Jesus and the idea of warring. 
And Jesus says, therefore, in verse 25 of chapter 6, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? I'm going to stop there because we've already read through this. But Jesus says don't worry. And this is related to what Joshua went through and what the Israelites went through because in the same way, it wasn't food and the basic necessities, but it was worried about their safety and how they were going to overcome and accomplish this what seemed to be an impossible feat. Jesus says, don't worry about your life, your food, your drink, your body, your clothing. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying go out and be reckless. He's not saying go out and don't worry about working and don't worry about you know, harvesting because I'm just going to ma- make food magically appear. Now, God did do that at one point in time when Israelites were in the wilderness because they were, he was forcing them to be in an area where Really, it was difficult to provide food for themselves because he was in an area, that was an area where they weren't, you, know, you couldn't really grow things. But Jesus says, stop worrying about these essential things in life because I even clothe the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, Gentiles. All these things are much less than you, and yet I still take care of them. See, that's the faith that Jesus wants us to have. These are the basic essentials of life. Now, I think that you can also apply that to our basic health. We don't know what's going to happen in the flesh in this life. This isn't meant to be a doom and gloom, but all of us, if Christ doesn't return before then, are going to die of something. But we know that we've already truly died in Christ, and we are now alive in Him, and that's what matters, because this, we age, things happen, tragedies happen, but there is inheritance that we have, there's another life, there is a kingdom that's coming to this world that we have to remember about. Worrying about such things gives evidence to our lack of faith. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have worries. I'm not here today to tell us that, hey, if you ever worry about anything or be anxious about anything, then guess what? You're not a Christian or you don't have faith. I mean, we're human. We're still in this body. We're still imperfect. But we have to live a life as much as we can with remembering that we have a God that has a very, very mighty hand. And that He cares about every one of us. The last implication that we can get from Joshua's story is that we must approach God in holiness. Think about the setting right before the conquest of Jericho took place. The Israelites consecrated themselves. They were circumcised as the law of Moses, as the law of God had prescribed. And they partook of the Passover and kept the days of unleavened bread. They took the time to set apart that holy time and go through what that holy ritual that God had prescribed them to do of circumcision, the partaking of the Passover, and the days of unleavened bread before they went to battle. Both are symbols of obedience, sanctification, 
and holiness. We must remember who we are, who God is, and as a response to this, as Joshua realized, in our lives, we must take the sandals off of our feet. Of course, we will literally just in about a month at the Passover ceremony, which is coming up. But as we approach God, one of the things that's easy to do is just get wrapped up in our lives, right? Oh, God, do this for me, or God, do that for me. Or, but in all of this, in this faith that we're supposed to have in the mighty God that we have, and how we have, you know, that, that commander of the Lord's army is still around. God is still around. He's still fighting our battles for us. Do we take the time and realize that I have a commander, I have a God, a mighty God, an active God, I have those things, but do we think about taking the metaphorical sandals off of our feet as we approach Him? I think now, obviously, with what's going on in the world, but even just leading into what's coming up in just a few weeks, just a little while, Passover, it's a good time to start thinking about those things and about you know, examining our lives, examining our closeness with God and our focus on God and our faith in God. And how we're living our lives. How we're approaching God. Are we taking the sandals off of our feet? Approaching God with a pure heart and a clear conscience. And obedience to Him and Him alone. And humbling, submitting, and asking ourselves, God, what is it that you want me to do? Obviously, we're all in different circumstances. We're all in different situations. We go through different things. But as we approach this rapidly coming Passover season, those are questions that we need to begin. We should always ask that question, but especially during this season. So in conclusion, a few things I just want to say, obviously. Uh, I'm no pastor, no elder. I'm, I'm part of the young. I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm in denial that I'm, 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 that I'm not old. But I'm, I'm in the young category, okay, uh, that Peter talks about, you know, the elders and the younger ones. I'm not saying that because uh, I think I'm so young, but because out of respect for our elders that are actually ordained, elders that we have in this church that are leaders in this church. So I'm not speaking from that, but of course, in light of what's going on, what I said, my main thing is our attitude. Not telling anyone whatsoever how to, how to act in terms of, what precautions you take in the midst of this situation that we're going through. I think it would be wise for all of us. And I say this both because of what health officials tell us, but also what the Bible tells us. It's interesting when you read the first five books of the, the Bible that God had some pretty detailed discussions about personal human hygiene. There's a reason for that. He's the maker of our biological bodies and all the animals that are out there. And he understands pathogens and he understands illnesses and, 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 and how you shouldn't eat certain foods and how you should eat certain foods in certain states and how you shouldn't prepare foods in certain ways. There's a reason for that. It's not just to be religious and it's not just to be always just to be, oh, so you know, look what we're doing. It's because he understands the human body. And so God definitely, I think his word preaches personal hygiene, but we should take the necessary precautions as far as you know, if we don't feel well, you know, uh, be cautious about who you're approaching or coming into contact with or elderly or immune-compromised individuals. 
that's, that's things that I think we would all agree we should always practice, right? It's not to say that maybe this is a good reminder of things that we should always do. And it's easy to get out of the habit of that. I, I work in a building that has approximately 1,500 kids. And about a block away on the other side of the street has another 1,500 kids. And they swap constantly from the hours of 8 o'clock to 2.45. And so I probably don't always practice the best, you know, of making sure I wash my hands and things like that. And not to get into any of that per se, but just to say that, of course, we should take proper, you know, we should practice proper hygiene and be mindful of our elderly and those who are immune compromised and things like that and continue to pray for them. Uh, because there's a lot of things going on that might be completely different of what's going on right now, but they, they need our prayers, uh, and they need our prayers for comfort as well as for their health. And so as I close, I just want to say that we have a mighty God. The scriptures are clear on that. There are many examples of that. Our God is our commander. Our God is our protect, protector. Our God is our provision. He provides for us and all of our needs, health, nutrition, safety, that our God is alive, active, and involved. And no matter the circumstances that we are in, we are in his mighty hand.